Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good afternoon to many of my listeners in the United States. Um, I guess it's now closer to evening to my listeners in Israel and other places in the world. Uh, today, my guest will be Sahar Vardi. You are listening to V Radio. Uh, if this is the first time tuning into V Radio for you, please check out my website, v or v radio.org. Uh, there you can find archives of other shows like this one. I frequently interview activists, documentary filmmakers, scientists, politicians, the few good ones, <laughs> uh, members of the Occupy movement, uh, mem- Charlie Veach and his Love Police Project, Ben Stewart, Chimatica and Esoteric Agenda-related content, Zeitgeist-related content. Um, but basically, this is a show for activists, and essentially by an activist. I'm an activist. And it is also a listener-supported effort, so if you like what you hear, please consider a donation to V Radio. Uh, all of that said, we welcome my guest. Welcome, Sahar, to V Radio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Sahara, basically I discovered you initially through a now very widely uh, distributed series of photos uh, and it just you know, kind of depicted a conflict uh between yourself and an Israeli police officer on the behalf of a Palestinian boy. Um, before we get into the details of that specific topic, I just kind of wanted to let the people in the air, you know, on the air, know who it was I was talking about because they certainly know about that picture. But first, I want to just kind of give them an idea, you know, who was the girl in that picture, and that would be you. So, what was what was it that happened in your life that led to you becoming an activist? Um, well, I've, I've actually been an activist from uh, a, re- a, a relatively young age. Um, when I was about 13 um, and growing up in, in West Jerusalem, it was the time that uh, the Second Intifada broke, which was the, the Palestinian uprising, Second Uprising, um, which among other things meant suicide bombings in Israeli uh, cities, including West Jerusalem. So it was the first time that kind of what was known from for me only as a word of occupation, uh, suddenly became rele- relevant to my life because these occupied people who ha- I had no contact with um, were actually, you know, some of them, um, blowing themselves up on, on the streets. And it became something that, that we kind of had to interact with. Um, and at the time, uh, my father started um visiting Palestinian villages with uh, an organization uh, called Ta'ayush, which would translate into kind of coexistence from Arabic. Um, so I joined him once uh, to, to a very small Palestinian village just outside of Jerusalem. And what we were doing there is that we were planting olive trees and um, re, re, kind of reworking on the uh, water pipe of the village um, and and painting a school of the neighboring village. Um, and at the time, they were just starting to talk about the, the separation barrier or the fence or the wall, um, which today people might be hearing about, but at the time it was kind of an idea. Um, and I was told back home, like school media, that this fence was being built to to prevent suicide bombings. Um, and then these people in the village show us where the fence is going to be built and I kind of continued going to that village for a very long time years later and actually saw the proceeding of what the wall did to the village uh, and the olive trees that we planted were uprooted and the water pipe that we laid down was dangling over the fence for years um, and the school that we painted which was of the neighboring village the kids from the village had to go through a checkpoint just to get to it and I kind of out of that started to see what these kind of big realities, these big concepts of occupation or wall or all these things, actually how they affect individuals and how they affect every single aspect of people's lives. Um, And how in in practice, for instance, this wall was separating one Palestinian village from another. And I can see what that had to do with my security. Um, So that's kind of where I started from. And then started becoming more active in in demonstrations against the the separation wall um in different villages that were that were uprising around around this because in reality the fence was taking a lot of their agricultural land and annexing it to settlements for for settlement expansion so it it had very little to do with security and was very 
obvious actually going to these places. So that was kind of my, my starting point. Well, that's excellent. Now, I did a little bit of reading on you. Obviously, like even before this, this one incident that I think it has made you more known to other activists, uh, you know, you've had kind of a history, and it's been pretty tough. I mean, there's some pretty rough stuff out there. I, I, that's one thing. I After this, I actually started watching a lot of video just recorded by different people involved in that situation, and it's it's really tense. It almost reminds me of, like, the situations here in the United States when the civil rights movement were you know, was, was fighting the battles that it was fighting for social justice. And, you know, just as, like, unfortunately, ignorantly bigoted on the part of some of the people involved, um, you know, I guess, like, there was one article that was entitled, you know, how does it feel to be, you know, referred to as a traitor? Um, you know, talk a little bit about what your experiences have been like being a Jewish activist in this situation. Um, well, I think it's a few things that might be important to say about Israeli society in general uh, before that is that um, one of the main kind of issues in Israeli society is that Israel has mandatory military service, which means that every 18-year-old, male or female, uh, go to the army for either two or three years, um, or at least should legally. And and the, what that means is that you have a society that's very much, much based on the values of military, everyone has gone through that that system, uh, and the mindset of people is very much set according to that, uh, which makes it very very complicated to to criticize the army. I mean, if you criticize any action of the army, you're criticizing yourself, your brother, your mother, your you know everything around you. Um, so that that's that's an, a big issue in understanding Israeli society. Um, so what that means, among other things, that people who who don't go the, to the army personally, I was a conscientious objector and I refused my military service. So I'm already kind of putting myself in a way outside of society, um, and and in a place that yes, people would be would be treating me as uh, in in many ways as a traitor. I mean that, that I have been t- called that more than once uh, for refusing to be a part of the occupation, uh, just because it's it's such a, a you know, wide um, a wide concept of everyone going to the military. Um, so, so again, being a Jew who's who's not a Jewish Israeli who's not um, part taking part in the occupation as I should legally uh, be in the army, uh, but also taking an active stand against it and standing with Palestinians um, is something that that also very much uh, I guess it. it it kind of challenges the the very well-known perception in not only in Israeli society, I guess also in Palestinian, that there's this, like, us and them thing. You know, we are, are the Israeli Jews, and they are they, the Palestinians, and and there's not supposed to be a mixture, and you're supposed... It, it's very clear what side you're supposed to be on. Um, and when people start to kind of chip on those sides and say, no, th- those are not the sides as far as I'm concerned... Um, and, you know, it's not that I switch to the Palestinian side because I'm, I'm an Israeli. This is my society. Uh, you know, I, I all my friends are in the army. Um, it, I don't switch sides, but I'm not going to take that, that kind of segregation. Um, so that's something that, I mean, is, I think it's, it's very important, but it is very hard, again, to do in a society that, that's very kind of one-way-minded. Um yeah, I guess. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, I think, you know, to, I mean, I don't know anything, obviously, about the Israeli military, but I can only assume that people in the Israeli military go through the same kinds of indoctrination that soldiers do, you know, in other militaries in the world. Um, I imagine that's got to really change the way society works, too. I mean, you can generally tell, you know, there's something different about everybody I've ever met who's been in a, in the military, you know, there's something very different about them. Their worldview is very different uh, about everything. And, you know, that that's why I use the term indoctrination. You know, and then you kind of have a, a country full of people who have all been, you know, in that situation where they've been indoctrinated. And, you know, also just the, the situation that comes out of the... Uh, 
you know, having been serving under that circumstance, it's got to, you know, enhance patriotism, and it probably also makes it a little hard for people to be willing to question their government. I think you made an excellent point when you said, well, now you're talking about your mom and your dad and anyone else who served in the military. You know, I got to ask, so how did you avoid this compulsory draft? I know you did, you know, some time for it, but, like, how did you find, I mean, how is it you're still existing in Israel now and not being forced into the military? Well, it's important to say that, like, when I said that Israel has mandatory service and everyone goes to the army, that that's not really the case. I mean, yes, there is mandatory service, sure. but then you have huge sectors of, of of society that are automatically exempted. I mean, all um, Palestinian citizens of Israel, because 20% of the population of Israel are actually Palestinians, um, and they're all exempted from military service, and then you have a, a big group of ultra-Orthodox uh, Jews who are exempted and religious women, and you have all these different sectors that are exempted anyway. But then you also have um, 12% of of the, the rest um, who get out on mental health, and that's a very, very common way to get out of the army. Uh, in every conscript army, <laughs> I mean, right, that was also, right. also the case in Vietnam, and, you know... Um, and and so a lot of people choose that way, and it's very clear that the army also, I mean, they let out 12%. It's very obvious that they don't really need the manpower. Um, there's much more of a need of this kind of social cohesion that, you know, everyone goes to the army. It's much more of a concept than an actual reality. Uh, but personally, instead of getting out through mental health, which is kind of a backdoor, um, myself and a group of, we were, at that year, we were 10 Mm-hmm. Uh, decided to publicly refuse and say that we're not going to the army for political reasons because of the occupation. It's actually important for us to put it out there and not try to find back doors um, because we want to confront Israeli society with that and, and tell Israeli society that there are 18-year-old kids here who would rather sit in prison than be a part of the occupation because we've seen it and we actually know what it looks like. Um and then, uh, personally, I, I spent uh, two months in prison and then three months in detention uh, for refusing, mm-hmm. and eventually was also released on mental health. So there's, like, a very clear stigma that the Army puts out on people who don't serve in the Army. You know, where we're labeled as crazy. Um, sure. So that also, I mean, has a, an effect on, on the, rest of, the rest of our lives in, in many ways. But on the other hand, I think that the Army would like to make that effect look much worse than what it actually is. And in reality, it's actually much easier to get out of the army and also live your life after that than what society would like you to think. Well, that's (laughs) an excellent addition to this conversation for sure. Um, Now, let's get to the heart of the matter. Let's talk a little bit about... um, just what is at the core of this conflict? I mean, obviously, I mean, uh, you know, we're all told that, you know, when the the state of Israel was created, that essentially there were people that were already living there that were kind of just told to move. Um, And, you know, I've seen, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, like I mentioned you off the air, you know, I've seen things like that happen in places like Ireland that have resulted in just, you know, never-ending conflicts that just go on and on and you know, and that's, I think, you know, I remember talking to some Muslim friends of mine and asking them what they thought the core of the matter was, because in some cases it's it's described as some kind of religious, you know, fight. And, you know, one of the Muslims told me, he's like, well, I wouldn't really call it that, although it ends up being involved in some ways. It really just has more to do with this situation of how the state of Israel was created and how there were people that were living there were basically just kind of told, okay, um, you're not living here anymore. So, um, I know that a lot of this stuff would just be considered kind of duh from anybody who has studied this, but, you know, just kind of, you know, take me through it from your perspective, you know, how all of this started, how it's developing, and where do you see it going from here? Well, it's, it's very hard to, to say, uh, but I can say that, I mean, just from the religious perspective, um, my family generations ago um, came from came from Iraq for religious reasons in the 19th century, mm-hmm. um, mainly to be in the Holy Land. They were rabbis. Um, and then, you know, they came into a Palestinian community and were living in Hebron, mm-hmm. um, which was was one of the mixed communities that had, uh, it was a Palestinian city, but it has a pretty big Jewish community in it. And they were living just fine uh, without a state uh, and without any kind of nationalistic uh, intentions. 
Um, and then you had these, you had four mixed cities and a few Jews uh, living in, in those different places um, inside a Muslim population uh, and, a, and a Christian population. So again, the religious issue in many ways was much less an issue than mm-hmm. than the nationalistic and also, I mean, for for years and years, the different empires that were involved. You know, the, the Ottomans uh, were in power, and then after World War One, uh, the British uh, got the mandate for for the area. So you know, you have all these external powers that were always playing around with it. Right. Um, but then, if we're kind of trying to to get to the point of it, uh, the Zionist movement, which was the nationalistic movement, uh, European-based movement. Um, of Jews that said we want a nation state. All the other Europeans are are doing that thing. Uh, this is like end of the 19th century. We also want to be a part of that. And in the beginning of the 20th century, they started moving more and more to Israel with that intention, uh, or to then Palestine, with the intention of creating a nation state. Um, and that obviously brought tensions in because that was that was no longer Jews coming in to pray. That was that was people saying we want sovereignty on this area. Um, and this, there was a lot of violence involved for for the first half of the 20th century, um, both from the Jewish side and from the Palestinian side, and from the British trying to control the whole thing, until the British kind of had enough uh, and had a, a you know falling apart empire in the meantime in India and so on, uh, and just said that they don't want to deal with it anymore. And and then the UN offered to to create two states. Um, one Palestinian and one Jewish in this area. Um, the issue was that they were offering a little over half of the land for the Jewish state and a little less than half for the Palestinian state, while the the demographics were almost the other way around. You had right. around two-thirds Palestinian and one-third Jewish, so the Palestinian leadership said no way. And mainly that's how uh, the, the War of 48 started. Um and now the War of 48, uh, it started of a war between the Jewish militias and, and Palestinian militants. And then you also had um, some other Arab armies from the area, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, uh, coming in. But mainly one of the interesting things about uh, that war is, is how it ended. It ended um, with what Israelis call, they call it the War of Independence. Mm-hmm. That's when the state of Israel was created, but then the other side of it is that Palestinians call it the Nakba, which means tra- which means the disaster, uh, <laughs> because what happened out of this war, except the creation of Israel, um, is that in what became Israel, there used to be over 750,000 Palestinians, um, and when Israel was created, there were only 50,000 Palestinians there, and all the rest these almost 700,000 people were displaced and became refugees around uh, in, in different Arab countries around it. And in Lebanon, there are refugee camps until today. Uh, and also in the West Bank and Gaza that became under Jordanian and Egyptian law. Um, so that was a very complex situation at first. <laughs> you have hundreds of thousands of refugees. Um, and then in 67, uh, there's another war in which Israel also occupies the West Bank and Gaza, these two areas that are highly populated with Palestinians, only populated with Palestinians, uh, both refugees and people who were there before 48. Um, and since then, until today, there's a military law over these areas. Um, in Gaza, it's right now not physically in the Gaza Strip, but rather all of its borders are controlled by Israel, uh, air, sea, and land. And then in, in the West Bank, you have physically Israeli soldiers there on a daily basis. Um, and 40% of the West Bank, Palestinians can't even access. Um, and there are Jewish settlements inside the West Bank. Uh, today, half a million Jews are living in settlements in the West Bank of a population of 7 million citizens in Israel. That's a huge percentage. So that's kind of the, the situation now. Well, it was an excellent uh, summation of the situation. It just sounds like a perfect storm for just kind of never-ending conflict, which reminds me, once again, a great deal of the situation in Northern Ireland for a long time. Um, Now, I guess at this point, you know, we've kind of gone over, like, you know, how we got here. And, you know, we've, you know, like, I guess they had offered that there to be two states, as, you know, and many people have said there needs to be a Palestinian independent state. 
And so what happened to that? You know, did, where where did that just cease to be? Well, I mean, they only started talking for years. Israel wouldn't recognize that that there is a Palestinian people or a Palestinian leadership, and that only happened in the nineties uh, mm-hmm. that Israel even recognized that. Um, but then the peace talks that started in the nineties uh, mainly ended when when the Israeli prime minister was shot by a, an Israeli right wing, um, and and then all the peace talks after that. Uh, mainly didn't work because there are a few things that Israel always demanded. When they said two states, they had conditions. And the conditions were, A, that they want to keep the Jordan Valley, which is a strip of land all the way um, from the north to the south of the West Bank, mainly dividing uh, just, just the area between Jordan, the country, and the West Bank. And what that would mean is that a Palestinian state would have no international international borders except for with Israel. So Israel would have complete control on their international borders. And then another area that they said that they want don't want to even talk about is Jerusalem, which is not only the Palestinian capital, uh, economical capital, it's, it's the main trade area. Um, but also, I mean, we can't take religion completely out of it. Jerusalem's a holy city for all three monotheistic uh, right, right. religions. And, you know, saying you'll have a Palestinian state without access to Jerusalem is something the Palestinians will never agree to. Um, And then they also said that they won't give up settlement blocks. (coughs) Now, settlement blocks, um, you can Google a a map and, you know, find a map of what settlement blocks means, but what it would mean is dividing the West Bank also for south and and north uh, different parts because there's settlements between them. And it also means... Uh, settlements around the water aquifers uh, of this Palestinian state to be. So it would be a Palestinian state with no Jerusalem, no border, international borders, and no water. And that's even without talking about all these refugees living in Lebanon and so on, that today we're talking about millions of people, uh, the descendants of, of the refugees from 48. And that's something that Israel was never even willing to talk about. So the Palestinians obviously didn't agree to that, and it's kind of been stuck on that level. You know, that's the level of discourse of two states. It it can happen because Israel is not willing to talk about anything that Palestinians can negotiate. Um, I was actually reading uh, a book written by American Quakers back in 1970 uh, that interviewed different uh, Palestinians and, and Israeli leaders at the time, and there's a quote from an Israeli leader saying something like, um, we can't negotiate, like, there won't be peace in the coming years because the Palestinians will not agree to our terms and we won't agree to their terms. And, right. you know, he's saying that in 1970 and nothing has changed since. Um, and it's very clear that there's there's a deadlock here. Now, when it comes to deadlocks in situations like this, that this is just like a kind of a question, really. One of the things that happened in Ireland, in addition to just other, like, long-standing conflicts, is that the politics of the situation is certainly a motivating factor, but there's also the motivating factor that people sometimes get involved in this because, you know, they killed my mother or they killed my brother or, you know, they killed someone I know, so now I want to kill one of them. And then, you know, you go and then you avenge your mother, maybe killing some other random person. And then, you know, then that person wants to avenge their brother or mother or rel- or loved one. And then it just goes on and on and on and on. Like the, the personal grudges that come out of situations like this helping to perpetuate the conflict. Would you say that that's a factor? It's a factor, but I think it's much smaller than than anything else. Um, I mean, revenge is there and it's always there, but it's on a very personal level. Um, and and if a society wants to, to control that, it can. And I think that the much bigger issue is that there are way bigger interests involved uh, in this um, anything from from the fact that, that the Jewish the Jewish society is uh, is very much bred on fear. I mean, we are we are taught that you know everyone has always tried to kill us, and we're kind of living on our sword. Um, and and you know you have a society that's bred that way. It's very very hard to get out of that mindset. Uh, but beyond that, you also have very clear economical interest in the occupation in maintaining it today. Today. Um, Israel benefits from free land in the settlements, just taking Palestinian land, uh, uh, free water. Israel t- 
today takes 70% of the Palestinian water. Um, you know, you have all these resources, very cheap labor using Palestinian labor because you don't have the same labor laws in occupied territories than inside Israel. Um, and then on top of that, uh, the really big interests are all these international companies invested in building factories in the West Bank and so on, but also the fact that Israel's main industry, the biggest uh, um, income of Israel, the, the biggest export of Israel, is arms trade. And to have a successful arms trade, you have to be able to prove that it works. And then you see things like um, in in the uh, there was a, an Israeli attack on Gaza in 2008-9, uh, and it was using mainly drones. And then just after that, France bought a huge, huge deal with Israel of buying drones. Um, or you had, again, the separation fence that I was talking about before uh, that was built by Israel. The same technology and the same companies are building the fence between Mexico and the U.S. And it's very clear that these are technologies that prove themselves here and then can be sold. And that is a huge economical interest in continuing the occupation. Uh, the, the U.S. gives Israel every year $3 billion for buying uh, arms, only arms. And, you know, and, and that, that, that's a huge economical interest um, in, in continuing everything that has to do with occupation. And, for instance, this specific subsidy especially for for U.S. audience, I think it's important to say that it's not even coming to Israel uh, because what they say is that at least 75% of it has to be spent on arms from U.S. companies. So what it means is that Congress is giving 75% of this money, if not more, to United States arms company, companies, you know, and, and Israel is just kind of <laughs> someone who gets the weapons in the end. So you have all these economical ties around it that make the occupation very, very uh, profitable for a lot of, you know, that 1%. That's, you know, actually, I mean, that kind of is what it always seems to boil down to. Uh, you know, that's, I've actually, in a previous episode, I read from a book called War is a Racket by General Smedley D. Butler. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but that was written, like, back before World War II, and he was describing all the same kind of stuff that we see from Halliburton, KBR, uh, all of the uh, major defense contractors, figuring out ways to create situations of war so that they can profit from them. And I think that's actually one of the things that came to me because... You know, obviously, I have listeners who are on both sides of this issue, which is one of the reasons why I've avoided it for so long, because I don't want to offend anyone. But, you know, there were people who would show me the stuff that Israeli soldiers were doing that was bad. And I agreed, oh, yeah, that's absolutely bad. But it's it doesn't look any better than what happens when, a you know, someone from Hamas goes into a coffee shop and blows themselves up and kills, you know, a bunch of random people who may not have anything to do with anything that's ever hurt them, you know. It was difficult for people to put that into perspective. I said, what you really need to do is figure out who's making money off of all this. You know, there's your villain. Everyone else in this situation is just a you know a pawn on the chessboard. You know, that's and that was the the point that I tried to make, and you kind of illustrated. You know, yes, there is money being made in this situation, and there's probably money also being made from the you know the resources that you know the Israeli state is insisting on holding on to. And you know, that's just a guess on my part. I know that was. Part of our problem in Northern Ireland is that they insisted on keeping all of the land that had all of the industry and all of the developed technology on it for themselves. You know, England wouldn't give us that back. It didn't matter in the end because we just developed it elsewhere. But the the point was is that you know there was certainly a money interest behind all of it, regardless of any of the you know the other stuff that we get thrust into the middle of. And you know, so um, all that being said. Uh, I also, I guess now, I mean, let's kind of move on to the, the point of what was going on that day in that photo. Well, honestly, I, I had no idea a lot of the story. I found it out later. But uh, <laughs> what I did know is that every year uh, there's there's a march called the Jerusalem Day March. And the Jerusalem Day is mainly the day that Jerusalem was, according to, to kind of the, the, the settler or the Israeli right-wing narrative, then it, Jerusalem was u reunified. Uh, but according to to well my narrative, um, East Jerusalem was was occupied uh, on that day, and it's kind of a celebration for the settler movement uh, of of occupying East Jerusalem. 
so they have a march every year um and it's it's very i mean it's very extreme right wing um and they go in with huge huge israeli flags all across east jerusalem all across the palestinian side of jerusalem through palestinian neighborhoods um and crying you know slogans like i just remember not from this year but even the year before it they were going inside a Palestinian neighborhood and screaming death to the Arabs, uh, we'll burn down your village. You know, it's it's very clear what the agenda of this march is. Right. And we have the same slogans uh, uh, this year as well. Um, and so inside all of this, there was a, a small Palestinian demonstration trying to, to stand um, across from that. Uh, and they, we, 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 a few Israeli activists joined them and we were pushed back um by Israeli police, beat up. They brought horses, started running into people with horses, and so on. Um, and then, at a certain point, I just saw this Palestinian kid, uh, I don't know, he's probably around 10, 11, um, just running down the street really, really, really fast. And a border policeman, Israeli border policeman, running after him, furious. I mean, you could almost see the the kind of fire in his eyes. I mean, he was really, really crazy um mm-hmm. and then and then the kid fell and the palestine and the border police tried to, to to grab him uh and probably arrest him he was kicking him in the meantime um uh, and i guess i just happened to be in in the right time in the right place and and just stood between them uh enough time to let the palestinian kid run away um and then later on i found out that that the reason for this was that the palestinian kid had a, a palestinian flag which a settler grabbed from him um, and and tried to take it away. So the the kid tried to grab it back, um, and the border policeman apparently didn't like the fact that that a kid is trying to, I don't know, argue with a settler over over this Palestinian flag, which was obviously belonged to the Palestinian and not to the settler. Um, but that that was yeah. So after that, he started uh, running after him. Wow. Yeah, that's actually you know it was interesting to listen to the arguments about that photo and. You know, I'm one of those people that, because of the fact that I I understand how you know internet journalism works, I needed to do a little more research than just look at the photo itself. You know, and that, there is a, a brief YouTube video of that incident with you, although it doesn't have the Palestinian flag in it. But I did manage to find um, one brief bit of a photo of the kid fighting with a, an adult. You know, but not I mean not as in like beating him up, but trying to get the flag away from him. Um, it was pretty obviously a Palestinian flag, and it was amazing me to me to watch how people would just spin, you know, three frames of photo to mean different things, you know, and you know there were a lot of people that were like, "You're being lied to," you know, that obviously this is all spin, and it was funny also just to listen to the arguments that would that would erupt over that, like what kind of spin was the child pointing a gun at the guy, <laughs> you know, it was like what 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 could have possibly been wrong about this, you know, and. One way or the other, at the end of the day, even if the kid had thrown a rock at somebody, he's still like, I mean, geez, he looked like maybe 10 or 12 or something. I, I mean, he wasn't very big. And, you know, I just don't I don't see that, you know, the level of violence, even just as you said, the kicking, you know, which is not in the pictures, but it's in the video. I'm like, come on. You know, if I walked up on that, you know, if a police officer was kicking anybody at that age, you got to be kidding me. You know, if you're so scared of a little child that you got to start kicking them while they're on the ground, you know, I just, you know, it was it was really intense. And, and you know, like you said, you happen to be in the right place at the right time, but that's how heroism happens, you know, in the real world. So, you know, I got to say, there have been a lot of people who have said, you know, you're a hero for this. And, you know, you've been very humble about that in all the replies that I've seen and the different articles that I've read, you know, where you said it's just a matter of being in the right place at the right time. Um, Have you spoken to that that child or any of his relatives since then? No, I actually have no idea who he is. We were trying to find out for a while, but, um, you know, pink shirt apparently wasn't a good enough description. Um, But... uh, No, we we didn't find him. Um but I do know that he got away, so that that's, you know, at least I know that. Right. And that's the other thing about this is just the nature of such a march. I mean, I, how can you interpret that as anything? That's why it keeps reminding me of what it was like when racism was at the height. That would be like a Ku Klux Klan march, you know, through Harlem or something, yeah, you just, know. Yeah, just just accompanied by police. Right. And, and like sponsored by the municipality of Jerusalem. Right. That's what makes it even worse is that, you know, it's 
here, let's have a holiday where we go, you know, rub in the faces of all these people. And that's, you know, I, I hate to bring this up, but I, I have to ask, has anybody in Israel ever told the stories of what it was like to be mistreated by the Nazis? You know, I, I don't, it's just that, that whole thing sounds like, you know, how can they, you know, be conscious of what it is they're doing to these other people and at the same time be descendants of people who encountered brutality of their own? Do you, do you have a take on that? Well, first of all, there's a saying in Israel that um, you're not allowed to make parallels. And when someone mean, says that, it always has to do with the Holocaust. Then it's kind of this, like, there's a taboo. You're not allowed to to make a parallel to anything of the Holocaust. They're actually trying to pass a law now that says that you're not allowed to use Holocaust symbols uh, for anything else but talking about the Holocaust. So that's, you know, it's always a very sore point in, in Israeli society. But I think that in general, I mean, um, what the Jewish people went through in the Holocaust is, you know, I think enough has been said about it, um, and and obviously terrible. But to say that because of that, um, the the Jewish people, I don't know, should should understand more. I, I think that's just like people don't do that. <laughs> um, right. It's kind of you know, memory is very a very short thing. Uh, but even more than that, I think that the ability of or or like. Our, the choices of of our society, I definitely can say it about the Israeli society, are usually not to make the universal conclusion, but rather the personal conclusion. And when you hear Israelis, uh, you know, go to Auschwitz and and have all these ceremonies, um, the saying is also is always uh, there's a saying, never again. Mm-hmm. But that never again is always kind of like never again for us because now we have an army and now we can protect ourselves and it's a very personal never again rather than you know what maybe you and I would like to see of a more universal uh, right, idea right. Of, of you know racism is is wrong in every single one of its uh, of the ways that it that it shows itself um, and if it's you know if it's genocide which is obviously the the the, the you know furthest level of it. But also, if it's shouting "death to all Arabs" in the middle of of East Jerusalem, that's that's racism just the same. Um, sure. And and no, I don't think that that conclusion is is made enough again because I think it's it's very much a, a protective place. People are are very much closing inside themselves of saying, "Okay, how do I make sure that this doesn't happen to me?" No, I agree, and that's that's really sad, and I think that's one of the things that I've heard, like my mother used to tell me this all the time, you know, that everybody's been oppressed at one time or another, and rather than focus on the idea that oppression is bad, you know, we focus on what happened to us specifically, you know, I mean, whether it's the Irish being oppressed by the British or, um, you know, the blacks being oppressed by whites, you know, we, we still have a situation here in the United States where we have what would refer to as reverse racism. I encountered it quite a bit as a child. Um, when I, where I grew up, there was a lot of black on white racism. And I'm like, my family didn't own slaves. I'm only fourth generation in this country. You know, like, why are you mad at me? You know, um, and even if they did, you're a kid. Right. I mean, <laughs> even if your grandparents did something, that's that's not on you. Absolutely. And I think that that is, you know, is really a, a telling issue um, is that I don't think that people recognize that it just needs to stop across the board. And I think that was one of the reasons why, you know, I, I made the comment I did about how, you know, um, when Hamas kills people, it's bad. When the Israelis, you know, soldiers kill people, it's bad. Killing is bad, you know. We need to look at, like, you know, that the fact that almost at the core of every one of these situations, there was somebody manipulating it and someone benefiting from it. Um, that is one of the only consistent things about war is that it doesn't happen unless there's money involved. I mean, you know, the United States needs to go off and be a hero to save Kuwait or, uh, you know, or to take down Saddam Hussein. But, you know, nobody's interested in going into Darfur and stopping the real genocide going on over there. You know, um, they they would say, well, you know, he gassed the Kurds, and then Ron Paul would say, yeah, you know, back in the 80s, and none of you cared about that then, but now it's a convenient excuse for you to be interested in invading in Iraq because you want their oil. You know, um, there's so much more to all of these situations, 
And I honestly feel, I mean, this is something, you know, mostly we talk about in the Zeitgeist Movement and the Venus Project, is just that we need to recognize that people are products of their environment, that they're victims. You know, they're victims of their environment, that hatred and bigotry and these things are taught. You know, they're not inherent, and that we need to address the system that creates these circumstances in the first place if we want anything to ever, you know, to ever permanently change. You know, and so I guess uh, now... Being is how you know you know being in your situation. How are you received by Palestinian activists? I've seen video of you like I guess kind of traveling around Europe. You did a presentation I think in Ireland with um with a Palestinian girl. Yeah. Um, well, in general, I mean, again, I can't talk about the whole Palestinian society, but uh, right. I mean, the, the the struggles that I do join. Um, it's important to say that that one of the issues for us as Israeli activist is to join Palestinian-led activism because uh, it's it's their own community affected and you know you go into a Palestinian village for a demonstration you know we come and we're there for a few hours of demonstration and maybe you know the tea and coffee afterwards but then they're the ones who actually have to stay there and deal with the consequences of the army and so very important for us to have them lead and, and say what is the direction that they want to take. Right. Um, you know, and we can make the choice if that's something we're comfortable with joining or not, but but they're the ones leading. Um, and so into that, um, you know, you, you come as an Israeli activist, I have to say that I've always been very, felt very welcome uh, in these environments. And again, I'm not going to tell you that it's always amazing and, you know, everyone's mm -hmm. happy about it. Um but one of the beautiful things that I, I think I've, I've seen in all the different villages that I became active in is kind of the process that the community goes through together um, and the idea that, you know, at first there's a lot of suspicion and, and you know, the Palestinians don't always know how to react to Israelis when all they know of them is, is you know, armed settlers or, or army. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. they get this different kind of Israelis. Um, and then this process ends with, with, I mean, really amazing things, just the, the personal connections that you see between activists, um, Palestinian activists and, and Israeli activists, um, and or, or even on a community basis. I mean, one of, uh, an amazing example that I can give is the village uh, called Nyalin in the West Bank that had a, a very long struggle, still has every week, uh, demonstrations against the, the fence for years now. Um at a certain point, one of the Palestinian activists decided to open a, a Holocaust memorial museum um, in the village. Right. To kind of, you know, also say it's important for me to know that and it's for, important for my community to know that and, and, you know, have this kind of, and, you know, that has a huge step, um, or not a huge step, just, just a huge, uh, even maybe gesture <laughs> or. You know, so you have these connections uh, on a personal basis that I think are, um, you know, for me that that's what gives me this kind of, you know, strength to to go on and and continue this and having, you know, when when I was in prison, um, my father went up to the Palestinian village that I was telling you about before, the the first village I went to, right. and I kind of continued going throughout the years. Um, and he went there to, to read them my refusal letter because I, I started my refusal letter talking about that village. Right. Um, and then he called me when I was in prison from the village and said that, you know, he was reading out the letter to, to you know, the people who knew me in the village and people started crying. And, you know, you had to have that effect and to understand that that's the level of solidarity that you're working with people um, is something that's, you know, it's, it's very powerful. It sounds very powerful, definitely. Now... Um, there was actually a, a caller who was interested in um, coming on to ask you some questions. Would you be okay with that? Sure. All right. Let me drag him on. We're going to try uh, Skype first, and if not, then he'll have to call in. But here we go. As soon as it adds, anyways. No, Ellery, call in. you'll have to pause the show. Yep. Yep. you got to get me to it here. There we go. <laughs> well, Ellery, welcome to V-Radio. Thank you kindly. I appreciate it. I really appreciate being on, especially with a, a, a guest who was in a photo that really stopped my day. It, <laughs> it was one of those photos that kind of uh, makes you think of those collages that you see in music videos where you see the man in China standing in front of a Chinese tank or 
um, the, the many other instances where life just kind of happened in that magic way that you know is going to be around for a little while. So one of the reasons why I wanted to be on was really just for the honor of saying um, thank you. Uh, thank you for, for being there at the right place at the right time and not failing to do the right thing. And it was something that I, I really appreciated and really wanted the honor to talk to you and to uh, to, to let you know of a few things that's uh, been my experience when dealing with people talking to them about Israel and other situations. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Celery. Was there anything else? Uh, yeah, there was um, an interesting conversation I had about a week ago that I thought that maybe pertained to the conversation that you're having here. And it was um, several people I was on break with from work, and one was a Muslim convert, and uh, one was a Christian, and one was an atheist, and then I was there. And the conversation of Israel sprang up, and it didn't really matter the religious background. It didn't really matter what was happening. There was a big, I guess you could say, um, understanding amongst everyone that cards are being played outside the hands of the people. There are interests involved that deals more with money and the consolidation of power than it had to do with religion and that religion was just one card in the in the deck that the powers are playing. And I, I thought it was interesting. And the reason why I think they understood this is because of what's happening here in America. And I'm not certain if you're if you've got your pulse on what's going on politically here in America, but there's a big disillusionment over our system of government and what it's really doing and who it's really for, which is causing a big awakening. And people are becoming more aware. I don't think they're fully aware. I don't think they fully understand everything. But they've sort of looked up and around and could feel the screws tightening in on them. And they're starting to question. And every one of them had seen uh, the photo that, that you were in. And it really struck a chord with them, too. Now, I understand that that wasn't your master plan. <laughs> I had no master plan. <laughs> I, I understand that. Um, but it, it didn't really matter. You had cultivated enough humanity to do the right thing, and it had an effect. It had an effect on people that you will never meet. And so for me to have the opportunity to simply say to you, uh, for people that you've never met, it's confirmation. It's confirmation that we are human beings and that we should care about the humanity of other human beings. And that assurance, that ability to have that background um, backup program in our actions that trumps politics, that trumps money, that trumps everything else, uh, you had that effect. And I really wanted to let you know that and to say that it was an honor to simply say thank you, even though it may have been a coincidence. <laughs> wow, I'm I'm really... <laughs> Uh, I, I have to admit, I'm really embarrassed by this whole, uh, but uh, but really, thanks. I mean, it, it really does mean a lot to hear kind of that, you know, having that influence. Well, of all the things that could possibly embarrass you, I'd say this is probably much easier to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again, Ellery, for coming thanks, on. Thanks for being on. I appreciate the honor. No problem, Ellery. Bye-bye. So... Um, that being said, I'm sure now you're probably blushing. <laughs> but, um, yes, I am. But, you know, I got to say, he's right, though. There were a lot of people who reacted that way. I mean, um, that, you know, here you have it. And, you know, to me, one of the major things that I think that, that it echoed for me is that, you know, there has been a constant problem, like, that I've noticed in uh, the conspiracy theorist world, in the... Uh, you know, and even just in the more conventional activism world, that people have taken their level of discontent or just outright hatred for the things that the Israeli government does into a level that becomes anti-Semitism. Like, it becomes racism. You know, I've had to, you know, kick people off of my forums. I've had to, you know, delete their posts and stuff, because every now and then you get these screwballs who come in there and, you know, they start 
spouting, you know, racial hatreds. And, and I was like, look, man, you know, you can dislike a government's foreign policy or whatever without hating, you know, the predominant race that lives there. You know, there's stuff the Brazilian government does that people don't like. That doesn't mean every Hispanic person in the world is evil. You know, there's stuff that people in the United States, obviously, the United States government, you know, okay, well, then I guess that's reason for, you know, for, for white racism. Let's hate, you know, the United States because it's predominantly you know, citizened by white people, you know, and, you know, I guess uh, you being, of course, you know, a Jewish person who kind of proves that, you know, that whole concept is bunk. I mean, what, I mean, how how would you comment on that? I'm sure you've probably encountered at one point or another the, the various conspiracy theories that Jews are trying to rule the world. Yeah, as you said, I mean, racism is racism is racism, and I have to say that, uh, in European politics, it's actually probably the most blunt of seeing people who, you know, 10 years ago were were speaking in neo-Nazi rallies and mm-hmm. then today are, like, pro-Israel because they're totally Islamophobic and they just, you know, they shifted their racism from from Jews to Palestinians, from Jews to, to Muslims. Um, and, and, you know, you see if, if these racism is racism. I mean, that's what it looks like. Um but then from a point of a, an anti-occupation activist, um, I think that one of the, the important things also for, for Jewish communities around the world um, is that the Israeli government has been very successful in making this direct connection between being Jewish, being Israeli, and the occupation. Um, and and today when you criticize the occupation, then someone will call you an anti-Semite. And when you criticize Israeli policy, then someone will call you an anti-Semite. And I think that one of the important things to do is to break that separation and say, no, you can be a Jew and against the occupation. You can be a Jew and criticize Israel. You can, I mean, not be a racist and criticize Israel. And, you know, to make that disconnection of saying Israeli policy um, is not, and, and the occupation, that's not Judaism to any direction. Uh, and I think that one of the the big problems is that the Israeli government is very much making that connection, and groups like APAC are making that connections, and and you know they're supporting that idea that occupation is is Judaism because they are, you know, a, a prominent Jewish voice that continues to support this, and and it's a huge. I mean, for me, it's a, a huge battle to get that to get the Jewish community to understand that it's also their interest to end the occupation to battle anti-Semitism. You know, and that's just, I mean, uh, once again, it just keeps coming back to the same playbook. I'm like, okay, so now being a Nazi is being a German, and, you know, and you got to be the same. you got to jump on the team, and if you don't, you know, then there's something wrong with you. I mean, there were a lot of, like, uh, um, Patton actually, you know, was had a lot of SS that wanted to follow him into a war with Russia. And one of the things that they described was that, you know, there were a lot of them who joined the Nazi party, not because, you know, they even really cared about most of the stuff that was being said. It was just that it was very well understood that if you didn't join the Nazi party, they were going to take your home. They were going to take your, you know, if you, especially if you had money, you know, they were going to take everything from you and destroy your life, you know, and although obviously we're not dealing with that quite that level of severity, they're basically saying, okay, well, if you're not with us, then you're most certainly against us. The same crap that we got with, you know, the the war in Iraq, you know, uh, you know, if you don't support this, then, you know, you're obviously for the terrorists or whatever other nonsense that you can put all of that together with. And I just, you know, it's, it's infuriating to me, you know, um, and I, it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, that's being all put together that way. And when I generally have to remind, you know, other activists about, you know, when they start to head in the anti-Semitism direction is that, you know, Israel's just another cog in the machine. You know, if we believe that, you know, that there are governments out there that are corrupt that might be working together towards some dark interest. There's no reason to believe that, you know, Israel is, is any more responsible for that or any less responsible for that than any other country that's involved in the, you know, the expansionist foreign policy, the colonialism, and all the other things that have kind of been a plague on the world, not just you know, any one country for centuries, you know, and uh, definitely an excellent point to bring up there. Now, um, I guess the next question is, what about the future? You know, what do you see 
could, you know, like, I mean, do you see any light at the end of the tunnel yet? Or are we still, I mean, are we still just looking at what's going to be another hundred years of this, this problem? There's a, a saying that a, um, a pessimist is a person that says that things can't get any worse. And an optimist is a person that says, yes, they can. So that, <laughs> that's where I stand at this point. Um, I, honestly, I, I do see things around us getting getting way worse. I mean, the the administration in Israel is becoming more and more right-wing. Racism is becoming more and more legitimate, uh more and more voiced. Um and and so I, I don't I can't be very optimistic uh, on this level, but I think that out of that um it, it might sound sound kind of, you know, marxist, um but that eventually it'll it'll be bad enough that it'll have to it'll have to turn around and there would have to be a, a loud resistance. Um, and I don't know, there's all like, you know, very small spots of light. If it's the Israeli equivalent of the Occupy movement, uh, which is, it's still very problematic and it's not, you know, as critical as I, I would like to see it. Um, but it does give people uh, for the first time, the sense of, you know, you don't have to be obedient uh, you get people who their whole lives were the mainstream, and then they get beat up and arrested, uh, and suddenly they they start to question authority in a way right. that they didn't before. And again, it could it could end up with nothing, uh, but that is you know a small light, and then you have a small light of of a specific success and a specific struggle in some Palestinian village, and you know you have these things, and eventually they have to they have to add up. Um, so that that's kind of my optimistic. But again, it's it's not a vision. Um, the only vision that I can see is that because Israel is is strengthening its uh, its control on the occupied territories so much, it would just force uh, a one state, or there already is a one state um, in many ways. Uh, I mean, Israel controls everything from the Jordan River to the sea, and then the question is, what would that one state look like? And, and today, it's it's segregated according to race uh, with different statuses. I mean, it's an apartheid regime. And then, and then our role is to change that and say, okay, if we already have one state, which is you know probably the best solution, um, then 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 you know the next struggle is to actually make it equal. And you know these kind of old slogans of one man one vote or one woman one vote, we'll have to change it. Um, but you know to to kind of start that again and and just start start the battle from a perspective of saying. We have a political reality of one state, and, and let's you know let's make sure that it's equal and, and democratic in the way we want to see it. I just hope that it doesn't take as long as it did for you know Ireland and England, and really it just came down to them just getting sick of it. Like I mean, yeah. that was it. I mean, there was no real. I mean, there was sort of a resolution, and that the Irish people got much more powerful in their government, but. It really just came down to okay, we're we're done with this. Like you know, I remember uh, the turning point that I noticed was like originally Bono from U2. You know, the band was really you know into talking about what was going on in his country, and then one day in one of the videos, you know, he literally you know just starts cussing out the revolution. You know, he's like f the revolution. It's a big huge conflict that nobody wants anymore. You know, and and I kind of sat there shocked. I was like, wow, you know, he's really changed his attitude. And I was like, okay, no, I get it. It's just you get to a point where you're just sick of fighting. You know, you're you're sick of bombs going off. You're you're sick of, you know, people getting shot by snipers. You're just sick of it. You know, and I hope that it doesn't come down to that. I really hope that, you know, efforts like yours get an opportunity to change, you know, uh how he's, you know, how this is evolving, you know, and, and that possibly we can see some peace. Now, I got another question. Uh, this actually came from the person who had previously called, but they had forgot to ask, and they contacted me with it. What would you say the Israeli view of the United States is? Like, from the, I mean, not just from your perspective, but the generic perspective of the average Israeli citizen of the United States. I think there's, like, so many different, you know, stigmas, anything from... I mean, obviously, the U.S. is seen as a, a great friend of Israel, and, and it has been, I mean, economically and, and politically, and, you know, you can always count on the U.S. to put that veto in in the U.N. when you need it, <laughs> and, um, you know, so that that's very clear that it's, uh, that you have that side, but you also do get a lot of criticism, especially, again, around social issues, and now that, you know, there's a lot of, of criticism uh, public criticism about um, you know the, the kind of neo-capitalist 
direction that Israel is taking even more, um, and even more than the U.S. in many ways. Um, and then there, there's a lot of criticism of, of you know, this kind of U.S. influence also on, on Israeli economics and on, you know, a, a state that was created, at least theoretically, um, as a very very social oriented uh state and you know with with very good welfare system and health system and all these things that are slowly but surely being privatized and kind of americanized <laughs> um so you do get that criticism but um you know it's, it's not as it's not as direct uh around the US and the US is still seen as like the biggest ally um and I think even more so since 9-11 of, of like saying, you know, now the the U.S. understands what it's like to be under terror and now we can, you know, strengthen our, our arms trade and strengthen, you know, these are things that all happened uh, after 9-11 of, you know, Israel has always known how to act with terror and now the U.S. needs to learn from that and having that connection, which is very, very strong. So it's, it's I think the connections are probably much, much stronger than, uh, than the problems that are, you know, probably affecting our lives much more. Um, I mean, the war and terror, this kind of great word, has very little effect on, on our lives. Uh, it has much more effect on the Iraqi lives or the Palestinian lives. Uh, and what does have an effect on our lives is, is what our economy looks like that was also imported from the U.S. Um, but people are not, they're not protesting that. They're not waking up over that yet. Right. Now, I guess... Uh my my question this more just being to you know just the topic of you being a bit more enlightened on the topic obviously than the average israeli citizen what do you see happening in iran do you, do you think you know do you think israel will attack iran well it's very hard to say i mean a lot of speculations have been going around and i i you know i, I don't deal with intelligence or whatever right honestly i, I don't think uh either iran or israel or the us will attack um you know to rage a war i th- what i am scared of is is kind of hubris the, the arrogance of probably either the us or israel but you know maybe even iran but not probably the us or israel um being arrogant enough to think that they can you know go in blow up the the nuclear reactor and get back out like like israel did in iraq um, you know, and, and think that that won't start something, and that that is what I'm afraid of. This kind of arrogant act of saying, you know, we, we could just do that, um, and then have a reaction from Iran, and and then you know have a war start without anyone saying this is what I want. Uh, but honestly, at this point, I, I don't think, you know, it's it's. I think it'll stay in a cold war, but you know, cold wars. There's they're just one second away from erupting. So. That's. Have you ever seen the film um, Iran is Not the Problem? No, I haven't. That's a, yeah, I had the filmmaker of that film on at one time. But um, I guess uh, you know the, there was an argument about whether or not um, – I'm going to totally mispronounce his name, but Ahmad Demijad or uh, – you know, yeah. Yeah, the, the president of Iran actually said that Israel should be wiped off the map or whether or not he actually felt that it should be changed through referendum is apparently well, at least the way the filmmaker interpreted what you know what he said um i mean what do you what is your take on that i mean or is it something you've even really thought about well i don't know exactly what he has or hasn't said uh, i think it's it's also rather irrelevant i mean mm-hmm. the last thing i'm going to do in my life is defend the Ahmadinejad. nothing to do with israel but like what he's doing to his own people is just you know right. <laughs> i'm not going to stand there <laughs> um but uh, but in general, I think that it doesn't even matter what he says. I mean, it it does matter to, to say that it's not out of anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a huge Jewish community in Iran to this day, um, and and they're not being persecuted. But but that's, that's not interesting. The point. It's something, uh, something they really talk about. <laughs> yeah, there's seventy thousand of them. It's, right. it's actually pretty big, um, but you know that that that's not like the point. The point is not what some politician says. Um, mm-hmm. Of course. So you know the, the point is, I mean, it's not the Iranians who, even if he da- did say that, it's not the Iranians who need to suffer off that. They're already suffering off him enough, you know. Sure, sure. All right. Well, Sahar, this has been an awesome conversation, and I gotta say, thank you so much for taking some time out of your, you know, your activism to 
to be on the show and um i hope to see you know and hear more of like the different stuff that you've been doing i've been kind of like i said you know following different videos that i've been seeing on youtube that involved you and other activists you know talking about what's going on over there and um you know my heart goes out to you and you know you're you're definitely you know a, a person who was put in a position to be a hero and um if that's uncomfortable well that's good that means you did it for the right reasons um I'd, I'd like to talk to you a little bit off the air if you have a moment um, after we end this segment but uh then, then let me make my my final station identification statements you've been listening to v radio um if this is the first time listening to v radio then go to my website v hyphen or v minus radio.org and there you can listen to archives of other shows like this one um there's also my must see tv list which is a list of free documentaries that you can watch on the internet that I suggest to anybody who's trying to learn more about this world as an activist. Um, and I am still looking for donations, much needed donations, unfortunately. Being an independent journalist is one of the only jobs I could manage to scrounge together, essentially, here in Michigan's economy. So please consider a donation. Um, in addition to that, uh, please check out my YouTube channel. I've added a lot of content to YouTube recently. Uh, including some uh, great uh, presentations regarding the resource-based economy model and other things that people who normally tune in here are interested in. So thanks again, folks, and I'll leave you with some words from Jock Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jock Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.